0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1st John, chapter 4. A little bit of halfway over, uh, halfway through this little letter. So we're picking up at chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first six verses of chapter 4 of 1st John. So let's hear together this uh, portion of God's word for us this day. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. And the spirit of error. Well, our little passage this morning opens again with another imperative, a command from the apostle. uh, Stated both negatively and positively. Just prior to our text, at the end of uh, chapter 3, and of course you remember when John wrote this letter, there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions, so... So it flows right from one uh, one sentence to the other. But if you glance back at the end of chapter 3 there, you you notice that he has reminded us that to keep the commands of God is to reside in God and for him to reside in you, to, to live in God. He uses the term abide, but that, that conveys the idea of, of living somewhere, of revo- zi- residing somewhere. And so the idea is he's He's saying you you keep his commands and it's like you're living in him and he's living in you. You've made your home in him and he's made uh, his home in you. And notice the ending of that sentence by the spirit whom he has given us. It is the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity living in us that causes all this to happen. And. And. Perhaps it's because of his mention of the Spirit at that point that he leads into the discussion that we see in uh, our text today. Because he wants us to be aware of the implications of that and, and how, we, how we live out this life in the Spirit. Remember back in chapter 2 of, of the letter, he, he spoke of believers having been anointed With the spirit back in uh, chapter 2 verses 20 and 21 you have been anointed by the Holy One that's the spirit and you all have knowledge I write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it you as believers he's saying as a church as a whole as a congregation as a whole the people that he's writing to here who are believers. You've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't use that imagery that often, but you remember that imagery from the Old Testament. Anointing was a major, uh, a major symbolic action that signified the setting apart of someone or something for a special service to God. And so, for instance, we read in Leviticus about the priests being anointed for their service and even the utensils and the furniture of the tabernacle being anointed for service the the idea is that 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 pouring or that sprinkling that set them apart in a in a symbolic and a spiritual sense now it didn't change the makeup of the material it didn't change the the, the human beings in, in a material, physical sense by that anointing, but it signified that God is, is setting them apart for a specific purpose. And, of course, in Leviticus, that purpose uh, setting apart the priest and all the furniture of the tabernacle and everything was for worship. Uh, they were to be used in a special way to bring God's people together in worship. And in the Old Testament, we also see kings anointed, okay, set apart for service. And the biblical economy, it's not to rule over so much as it is to serve the people that kings are appointed. Now, they forget that very quickly and begin to think like our politicians, that they're there for the people to serve them. But in matter of fact, they are anointed, they are set apart at, to serve God and to serve his people in that role. And, and we even see this used, uh, for instance, uh, of uh, Elijah when he's commanded by God to anoint Elisha. So there's a prophet being anointed. So, so these people in these special roles, priests, kings, prophets, are anointed that they're set apart for a particular service. And, and, and John's now saying, you all have that. Do, do you catch the significance of that? The, the new covenant broadens, as it were, beyond the old covenant. Uh, it never restricts. And, and, so, and so John says, you have been anointed the Spirit has anointed you, and, and so you, through the Holy Spirit within you, have been given the knowledge of the gospel. Remember, the, the people receiving this letter in the first place are being troubled by some people who came along and said, You don't know what we know. Okay, We have the inside knowledge. Okay, We have a second level of knowledge that you don't have. And John is speaking directly against that at the end of chapter 3, where he says, you do have knowledge. You don't need some second experience, some, some higher level of knowledge. If you've responded to the gospel, that's the Holy Spirit working in you, and you know the truth. Uh, and Paul picks up on the same idea using the imagery of baptism. Baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just as the body is one and has many members, speaking of a physical body there, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, meaning Christ and his body, the church, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I, I'm writing you, then, John says in his, in his epistle, because you've experienced this. You've been baptized by the Spirit. You've been anointed by the Spirit. And so you know the truth. You know the truth of the gospel. John said in, in chapter 2, verse 27 of the same letter, But the anointing that you received from him, that is the Spirit, abides in you. There's that word, lives in, resides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Stay in the truth that the Spirit revealed to you. That's what he's saying to these people. Don't be led astray. Stay in the truth. Let it live in your mind and heart. Live in the Spirit. And the evidence that you're doing that, remember Paul, John said in chapter 3, the evidence that, that that's happening, the sign that, that you can see that that's happening is your love for one another. If you love God and you love one another, that's a sign that the Spirit has done this work in you. It is the essence of God's law, in fact, he said. And as, so as you practice this love, you know that God is living in you, through the Spirit who baptized you and who anointed you. All that's background then for for chapter 4, verse 1, where it's clear that the apostle is referring not just to the Holy Spirit, but to other spirits. John associates these spirits, notice in our text, with false prophets, people who teach what is not true. And he's already warned us against them earlier in in the letter, you remember. Uh, John's sort of repeating some things because we need to hear them again from time to time. And so so he's contrasting the Spirit of God on the one side and these other spirits. And just as the Spirit of God is the source of truth, the spirits that are not of God are the source of lies. So he's setting up a, a, a stark dichotomy here, a stark difference between the two. And it's these other spirits that are motivating that are animating the false prophets that are troubling the church here so since John loves the church he cares for the church he gives them this imperative in our text and of course we want to read it as an imperative for us as well he's already said earlier in the in the letter that he doesn't want Christians to be deceived He doesn't want God's people to be led astray. We're not to be naive or gullible when it comes to the teaching we hear. That's really what he's counseling against here, isn't it? Don't believe every teacher, he says, for the spirits behind many of them are not the spirit of God. Now, at the same time, John doesn't want us to become cynical and just think there's false teaching everywhere. He, he doesn't want us to, to overreact here and to say, well, I, I guess that means I'm on my own. I, I'm not to listen to teaching anywhere because how do I know who to trust? Now, obviously, John's not telling us to do that. In fact, this letter is teaching, right? So he's assuming we need teaching. And God's people always need teaching, no matter how old they get. There's always room for Learning. Uh, So John's not saying to reject all teaching, but he is saying, use your heads here. Uh, Be wise in who you listen to. And, And so what he directs us to do in our text then is to test the spirits, whether they are from God. Don't just listen uncritically. Don't just assume because somebody's standing behind a pulpit. Or because somebody's speaking on a Christian radio station or engaged in some Christian ministry. Don't just assume by external things that the teaching that they're giving to you is true. It may not be from the Holy Spirit. It may be from spirits opposed to God. Now, now God's word has always counseled his people this way. Uh, back in Deuteronomy, when the covenant is, is first being set up with Israel, the earthly covenant, they are warned repeatedly against false prophets. Here's the way it's put, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, uh, the Scripture has both of those, Right? Prophets, dreamers of dreams, dreams were important in the the history of Israel, dreams are important. Think of Jacob's dreams and Joseph's dreams. So if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, okay, not only he seem to be in the tradition of God's communicating of truth, but There's some kind of sign that he's done, some kind of wonder that he's accomplished that seems to verify his words. So everything seemed to be stacking up until you realize, the text goes on to say, if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. If their message does not stack up with the word of God, don't listen to them. In fact, the text goes on to say to the Israelites, the Lord your God by this is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that interesting that it's sort of intimating that That this experience of discerning false teaching and resisting it is actually a means to demonstrate your love for God. It's a way for you to grow in your relationship with Him. And so, very clearly, it's set out that you need to be accountable in this way. And there are numerous examples of of this kind of scene being played out in Israel, sadly, often they don't follow through. Uh, You can go to 1 Kings chapter 22 and and see this sort of being acted out. The King Ahab in Israel is is wanting to do, uh, undertake a certain uh, course of action, military action, which is not of God. And sure enough, he has a host of prophets there to affirm him in that. And they say, yep, that's it. You know, God's going to give thee a victory here. But there's one prophet who's a man of God. And and he stands against that. And says, in fact, these prophets are speaking deception. There is a deceiving spirit or spirits behind these prophets. One of them, hearing that, uh, strikes him across the face. He paid a price for it. In fact, he gets thrown into jail. But there is a clear decision to be made by God's people there. Do you believe the true prophet or the false prophets? Sadly, Ahab doesn't listen. winds up costing him his life. Jeremiah rebukes false prophets in his day by saying, Thus says the Lord, God, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners, who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. There always seems to have been more false prophets than true prophets in the Old Testament, and God's people were continually having to make a choice, choose who they're going, they 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 hopefully were testing. Those prophets, some of them, like Evaimele's servant of the king, literally is his name, took Jeremiah aside. even that man even saved his life. In the New Testament, same counsel is given. Here's Paul in First Thessalonians chapter five: Do not despise prophecies, say don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do, don't refuse to listen to any teaching. But test everything and hold fast that which is good. The church in Ephesus is commended by God in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, for doing exactly this. Here's something it would be good for, for church to hear. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He's commending them for testing those who claim to be authorities and rejecting them. Now, we could go on. There are a number of other passages that that uh, talk about this, and warnings both from Peter uh, and from Paul that that believers should expect false prophets to come. They should expect false teaching to come. Anytime there's a valid work of God, there is a counterfeit work uh, sponsored by Satan. And so we're commanded over and over again to, to test the teaching that we hear. Well, how do we test them? Well, there's one test that's really been implicit already. Sort of, we can read it between the lines in John already, but... It might be helpful for us to hear this directly explained by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7. Here's here's the Lord's teaching himself on how to counter false teaching. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Do you see the imagery he's using there? They look like believers on the outside. They look like sheep. But inside their wolves, Paul uses that same terminology when he warns the church at Ephesus, which, evidently, at least for a time, heeded his warning. When he, he said to the elders there, "From your own midst, there are going to rise wolves. Be on your guard." So, what does Jesus counsel us to do? Here's what he says: You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, he switches the literary metaphor here. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And he goes on to give the sober warning. There are going to be many people in the judgment... Who addressed me as Lord and said, didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do great works in your name? And he says, I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. They didn't have the fruit. Oh, what is the fruit? Well, we've already had John reminding us of that over and over again, haven't we? It's love, right? Remember, we were just talking a few minutes ago about the fact that he says, if you love God and love one another, that's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is, is living in you. You're not born naturally self-sacrificing. You're not born with a natural bent to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. That's true love. Remember, that's the definition of love that John gave us. You're not born that way. You're born selfish. There's not a baby been born yet. That wasn't born selfish. So if you. If you have even a small amount. Of that self-sacrificing love. That's a sign. That somebody gave it to you. And that somebody is is God himself. So the good fruit of true children of God. Is to love him. And to love others. Use that. Use I'm talking to you. Use that in your evaluation. Of teachers in your church. Every congregation should be using this. Is there evidence that that there is a self-sacrificing love that is motivating those who are teaching your children, those who are teaching adults? It needs to be there. I'm not saying that teachers have to be perfect here, okay? That's not what John's saying. Not saying if that was the case, then we'd never have any teachers, right? Because none of us are perfect. But he is saying, look for that that quality of life that has to come from God because it doesn't come naturally to us. Look for teachers that genuinely love, that sacrifice their time and their effort not to get some attention. Not to improve their resume, but simply to build up the church. Look for that fruit of love. Now, now it's a lot harder to apply that when you're not right face-to-face with people. So Be careful about what you read in books or you listen to on the Internet. You can't see that person up front. You can't see them personally many times, so it's much harder to discern whether their life matches what they say. What they say may sound right down the track. It's hard to know whether their life matches that. That's one of the reasons why I'm only half joking when I say my favorite teachers are dead, (laughs) okay? Because uh, I, I have more of a sense of knowing how their life turned out and looking for the evidence there. So be careful. Be careful who you listen to. At the same time, just, just remember no human teacher is perfect. Okay, don't, don't look for infallibility. Look for the spirit of Christ. Look for a self-sacrificing love. Uh, you can you can see it if it's there. And I, uh, uh, an ex- excellent example that I would give is my friend Rick Daniels, who was who uh, called to pastorate. He pastored for some years, and then his uh, wife became uh, chronically ill, very, very ill. And, and he devoted the majority of his adult life to caring for her. I mean, to continue to teach and, and do other things as he was able to, but he had to be available to, for her 24 7. I mean, that was a testimony of love. <laughs> okay. uh, a- after her death, he sold everything he had and is now teaching in a seminary in Africa. That's a demonstration of self sacrificing love. And I can listen to him and, and know know that I can trust that he's doing his best to teach the truth. You know, so look for that. But John gives us another test here. That test was sort of implicit in what he's been saying about love and the evidence that that's, that, that gives of the Spirit. But he gives us uh, something very precise in our text, doesn't he? We don't, we don't want to miss that. Look there at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's a very specific content that he's pointing here to. Now, now, reading this literally, there's actually actually not a that uh, after confesses. Literally what he says is, by this you know the Spirit of God. Okay, here's the evidence of God's Spirit in someone. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You see how, how stating it more literally that way sort of, sort of highlights the fact that John is honing in here on the confession of Jesus Christ personally, okay? Okay. Every spirit who confesses Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. Now, that's shorthand in in the context of 1 John and the rest of Scripture. That's shorthand for confessing, for affirming that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He is fully man. He is fully God. Uh, some scholars think that behind the problems that are beginning to, to plague the church in, in John's day is the movement that became known as Gnosticism in and, and succeeding decades. And so they think maybe John is speaking against sort of the beginnings of that. And, and central to that understanding of, uh, uh, or so-called understanding of Christianity, was the idea that, yes, Jesus is fully God. But you know he couldn't have really been fully human, because, I mean, after all, the, the flesh is sinful. There, there's something there's something deficient in material existence itself. So maybe it looked like he was a man, or maybe for a time period he became human. He took on human form, but, but he wasn't fully human the way we are. So it's sort of they were sort of remaking Jesus in a demi-God image uh, taken from Greek philosophy. And John's saying, that's wrong. Anyone who does not affirm that Jesus is fully human and fully divine is not speaking from the Spirit of God. That, that needs to be bedrock in your thinking, in your evaluating teachers does this person's teaching affirm the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus Christ? If, if Jesus is not fully human and fully divine, we don't have a Savior. Okay, this is bedrock to the Christian faith. That's, that's why I think John is, is, is folk zeroing in on this right here. You can't lose this. Now, now, it's ironic that, that there are people that were even in John's day going, going around with the label Christian who were denying this. But remember, in the Old Testament, those prophets back then were claiming to speak for Yahweh when they, when they were lying. It, it's, it's really a, a mark of dishonesty when someone does this. If someone claims to be a Christian and denies the full humanity and full divinity of, of Christ, they're really being dishonest. Okay? They're trying to redefine the terms the way they want. Now, that's a natural human tendency. It's, run, it's running wild in our culture. Okay, people want to take words and they want to give them their own definition And there are people out there doing that with Christian faith. They're taking biblical words so they can use the words and sound like they're teaching truth, but they're redefining those words. You need to be on your guard against that. That, That's how the Unitarian movement took over so many churches in New England. That's why so many of the congregational churches on the greens and towns in New England are Unitarian Universalist is because men came in and they were using all the right words about Jesus, but they were redefining him. Yes, he's the Son of God. They would affirm he's the Son of God, but they redefined Son of God, so it no longer means fully divine. And they ended up in denying the Trinity. Okay, be on your guard. Against that. That's what John is saying here. You have to have the right definition, the right biblical definition of the identity of Jesus in order to have the gospel. In fact, notice he goes on to say in verse 3, the spirit that does not confess Jesus as fully human and fully divine, that's the Antichrist. There's always been a counterfeit gospel. There's always been a counterfeit religion. It's already here, John's saying. It's coming. It's already here in the world. Be on your guard against it. So he's giving us a content there by which to test, as well as that character test that he'd already implied that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7. Now he gives us some assurance. (laughs) I'm glad he gives us some assurance here at the end of the text. Otherwise, we might feel this is too daunting, too threatening. But look at verse 4. And you can always tell when uh, when John is getting really personal in this letter because he he calls us children. (laughs) Here, little children. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't be frightened by the need to be testing the teachers that you listen to. Okay, don't let, that, don't let that freak you out. Okay, you can have confidence as you do that, John's saying, because you are from God. You have been given the Spirit of God, and you have already overcome them. Notice he uses the past tense here. He doesn't say you will overcome them. You already have overcome them, he says. How have you already overcome them? Well, you've already overcome them by embracing the truth. Okay. If you've embraced the truth of the gospel, you have already overcome false teachers. Just a process of applying that victory then to the specific circumstances that you encounter. And how have you overcome come them? Well, it's not your own strength. Okay, this did doesn't depend on how smart you are. You, you, don't, you don't have to have a degree as great as whoever is criticizing the gospel has or, or have an IQ equal to theirs. No, your ability to overcome them has come from the one who is in you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's your confidence. Okay, you see that there, there's your confidence that you're going to be able to do this, that you're going to be able to discern right teaching and good teaching. It's that the Spirit of God in you has brought you to the truth, and because you have Him, you can evaluate the truth. So your confidence is in God, not in yourself. And that leads us then to this this closing contrast in the text. Okay, here's, here's, in a sense, yet another way to know false teaching from true teaching. true teaching. Look at verse 5 and 6. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God Listens to us, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You see the, you see the test to apply there? Who is their willing and affirming audience? Who's listening to them? False teachers are going to be acclaimed and listened to by the world. They're going to be, in an earthly sense, successful. That's why you never want to let outward appearances dictate your evaluation of good or or wrong teaching. False teachers often prosper. They're listened to by the world because they're speaking the world's language. They're saying things that the world wants to hear. By contrast, John holds up himself. And I think he means here by we... He and the other apostles. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Do you you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, when we and the other apostles speak, those whom the Spirit has given life hear us. Okay, there's an ability to hear. That recognizes the gospel. Go to the apostolic witness. To hear the gospel. That's what he's saying here. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Listen for the mark of genuineness. That characterizes those who speak in accordance with the apostolic witness. Make sure your teachers are speaking in harmony with this word. That's what he's saying. If they're not in harmony with the apostolic witness, don't listen to them. So John's given us some really great tests here to use for evaluating teaching. He's sort of assuming, by the way, that we're always learning. <laughs> so I hope, you're, I hope you're learning on a daily basis, looking for good teaching and using these tests. But, but just before we leave this test, I think we have, to, we have to take a minute and notice the personal pronouns here. Did you see those? There's a, there's a beautiful thing happening here. Look first at the personal pronouns, pronoun in verse 4. You. And that's not communicated as plural in English, but it's plural in Greek, I believe. You are from God. And, and the you is emphatic. Okay, so it's as if we would say in English, you yourself... Are from God that 's what he 's saying if if you un- have been united with God through the work of His spirit, by faith in Jesus Christ, here is your identity. Here is your identity. This is who you are. You may be identified in many other ways by your gender, by your age. Uh, the kind of work you do, your hobbies, your family background, genealogy. You, you may be marked in certain ways by achievements or by failures. Okay? Those things may, may in some sense define you, at least in the world's, ideas, uh, world's eyes. But here is your ultimate identity. You are from God. You are from God. To borrow the words given to the Apostle Paul, don't let the world press you into its mold by trying to define you by other things. This is what defines you. You are from God. The Spirit of God has given you life, and you've been made a child of God. That's your identity. Keep on being transformed, again, to borrow Paul's language. Keep on being transformed by your identification with him and his with you. He identified with you on the cross. You identify with him. So that by testing, as Paul goes on to say, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You are from God. Live like you're from God. That's your identity. But I also want you to notice the personal pronoun in verse, in, verse five, in verse 6. We are from God. And again, he uses an emphatic grammar here that's hard to, hard to communicate in English. But it would be something like, we ourselves are from God. You have your identity in Christ... And, and and in relationship with him then you're in relationship with others as well you are not alone okay you're not alone specifically we've seen that the apostle seems to be here indicating himself and other apostles used by the spirit to establish the church that seems to be what he's saying when he says we here and so he's inspired to say we are from god so here is the authoritative teaching that you, that you have to judge by. The second application of that is when, when John writes, you are from God and we are from God, he's underscoring the relationship between you and the apostles. Okay, re- remember this letter is for you as well as for its original ex- recipients. So when he says, you all are from God, and we ourselves are from God. He's saying you're in relationship with us. You are part of an august company, a noble group. Okay, th- there are heroes in your lineage. Okay, go back and, and read Hebrews 11 sometime to be reminded of that. You are from God and they are from God, then you're in relationship with a great company of heroes. Not heroes in the world's eyes. Far better than that. The author of Hebrews says, these people who suffered and were faithful in their faith are those of whom the world was not worthy. They were too good for the world. That's who you're part of. That's the body that you're part of. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that they did not receive the fulfillment of God's promises to them in this life because God had, quote, provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's as if, he's saying these great heroes of the faith, those who who endured hostility and who were faithful when it was hard, they're going to be made complete when you finish your course, when you live out your life faithfully to the end. So be encouraged by that. Let, Let their witness and faithfulness encourage you to be faithful this week what you're saying and what you're doing. Remember your identity in Christ, that you're from God and that you're going to God in the company of his chosen people of every age. May the spirit of Christ in you bring glory to to himself through your life. Let's pray together. Holy Father, how grateful we are that you did not leave us in the dark, that you've revealed your truth to us. Now, Lord, we pray that as you have revealed the truth to us, you would enable us to be faithful to that truth. To be those who love in a self-sacrificial manner, thereby, thereby show that we have living within us the spirit of the one who gave himself for us. Do that, we pray, Lord. Uh, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.